hello, Dr. Nick Flores. How are you, friend? I am trudging through the end of the semester with grading and, you know, tying up some loose ends for service and really striving for the light at the end of the tunnel. How are you? I think that I am in what you describe colloquially as the eye of the storm. Uh, and so like all of my students' papers come in on Monday. And so I don't have any grading to do and I don't have any teaching to do. I'm just sort of sitting and waiting for the madness. Ooh, that I think can even be more anxiety. Nope. No, 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 no. I'm choosing than... not to look around. It's fine here. It's quiet. What? There's no storm. <laughs> You say it's whirling all around me. Nah. Good, good on you. Good on you. Also, that's so late. Um, you are My God. listening to Learning on the Job, wherein myself and Dr. Harris, two recent-ish PhDs of color, discuss and navigate the world of higher education here in the U.S. And we, you know, present our unique perspectives on everything that we can legally, as well as things that, you know, have commentary on that won't get us fired. Call it a learning experience. Oh, I love it. I, I try every week to learn new things. And this week was no exception. Um, man. <laughs> Checking in. <laughs> Let's check in. Yeah. It happens so fucking fast. Remember, not like three, maybe, I don't know, time is a flat circle. Some amount of time ago, we had a conversation about how it looks like spring might be milder. Like maybe, just maybe, there's light at the end of the COVID tunnel. And like, mm. maybe, and, and I... I planned. I, God, fuck me. Why don't I learn? Why won't I learn? I remember when we went into lockdown the first time and we thought, oh, it'll be three weeks or a few weeks, maybe a month of See, of here's the thing. Isolation. I wasn't. I wasn't that girl. I was the one who was like, nah, it's going to be until we get a vaccine. But I was vaccine as endpoint. Like, that was me. Like, I was very much convinced that as soon as there is an available vaccine, all the sense will rain and this nonsense will be over and we'll all just get to go outside and do fun shit again. And mm -hmm. so I think maybe in that spirit, the check-in for this week is just like, nobody asked him to and nobody even likes those songs. I have no icebox where my heart used to be, but for no good reason, Omarion is on tour. He's just out here performing in every city and state. And I need to know, because I can't be alone in this, what has Omarion's tour cost you? Well, I am just the icebox heart or otherwise. It, it's just an icebox, mostly metaphor for winter, but also like literally it is just an icebox here alone, uh, mostly in this world of Omarion that is just taking over everything and said, fuck you to all of your plans and bitch you thought. We did think I was also very much in this fantasy world that I think you've described as once the vaccine is present, we will get to, you know, go out and do what we want and proceed with life and get our boosters. And, you know, I've been boosted. We're boosted. 
and here we are again they're actually predicting that it's going to be even more rough than the previous winter and that is disheartening demoralizing and at this point i'm not even sure that i am phased or shocked or dumbfounded it's more just a frustration and anger with the ineptitude of people at different scales all the way from the people at the top who could and can and should implement certain public health interventions and those of us on the ground and people who are getting arrested at Applebee's because they refused to get vaccinated. Literally, that was a story that I read this morning about some people I don't remember where. And when oh, it was New York. It was New York City. It was getting New York arrested. City. And can you Applebee's, imagine wanting to get arrested? But before that, Cheesecake Factory. Cheesecake we... Factory before that. Like the, the even... day before, six nice, lovely white people in Queens got themselves arrested at a cheesecake factory. And then, and I guess, in an effort to like plus up that protest, a bunch more white people went to the Applebee's the next day and got themselves arrested. That's where we are. That's how it's going over here as a culture. If you're an alien listening to this, please just take me. Just come in. <sighs> Take me to <sighs> I will gladly be the probe or whatever you need me to be, but it has to be better than whatever this is. I you said it and I I had to know, and so I didn't do a quick Google. Uh and it looks like the bubonic plague lasted for from 1346 to 1353. Um and in that time managed to kill between 75 and 200 million people estimated broadly speaking so i'm just saying like a we're nowhere near the end of this nightmare and b i guess it could be worse sure the logic and argument and framework about it could always be better it could always be worse i think does a type of work to obfuscate or to hide or to disavow yep the thing that's that fair we could be doing that's now, fair right because like, this is cause, like cause honestly astronomically like unspeakably awful like remember how this country went to war and destroyed itself and created an opioid epidemic and like destabilized the global economy and ruined the world over 3,000 people's deaths because 3,000 deaths was such an incredible toll to the nation's psyche that like if 3,000 people die we have to create war for 20 years 800,000 people have died of COVID 800,000 we crossed that threshold like this week 800,000 people have that's more than every war we've had at this point damn near put together if not officially mm -hmm. put together like it's 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 obviously bigger than AIDS it's obviously bigger than every other like the, like it's 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 the single biggest like crisis to hit this country in the time this country has existed and the reaction we've had is so deeply telling mm -hmm. it's we're all just tired. We're all just tired of giving a shit. We'd like to not give a shit anymore. Truly. And the level of 
exhaustion, frustration, anger, only in my estimation and in my own life draws out, right, this circumstance and the situation. And so I personally have been trying to figure out ways to cope with the trauma and the injury and the loss and the grief and the death that I mean, but how do you cope with ongoing trauma? Like, how do you deal with a bleeding wound? (laughs) You, You can't. You can't. It's like you first you have to stop the problem, then you can deal with the problem. And we are in the middle of it. And mm-hmm. every time we get good and tired of it, we tell ourselves like, oh, it must be over. And it's like, it's not, it's not over. It's not over. It's not over. And it's like really far from over. And mm-hmm. we're not learning whatever the lessons were supposed to be. And I feel like that's the frustration. It's like, I don't know. Enough therapy has taught me that when you're good and mad, it turns out you're probably mad at yourself. And it feels Mm -hmm. like America's good and mad. And maybe we're mad at ourselves for not doing the work of like making this not be our world. Mm. You know, I think that this is an interesting point about the translation, transmission of knowledge, of information, right, that is also a part of the conversation that I think that you and I have touched on in the past or in previous episodes, and to put it simply, the lack, right, of translation of public health knowledge to the to the public, right, or to people for whom this current and ongoing crisis affects very directly. And certainly we can point to leaders and previous presidents whom exacerbated and were, were, were themselves part of the problem, right? Of this lack of communication to the public about what was going on. And I think that that is something that you and I, in many ways, through our scholarship, are also attempting to address, maybe not as directly as like, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe in some ways I am with my work on HIV prevention and the AIDS historical formation of the kind of indexical moment that we're living through, that we can now live at a time where people can take a pill and not have HIV, right, or not seroconvert. And that's important. And similarly, not communicating the public health initiative interventions that will save lives with the with the COVID-19 pandemic seems to me an opportunity, not even an opportunity, a missed opportunity to really reignite a necessary buyer, speaking of metaphors now, for the public health at administ- administrators, people for whom we care about life, to really do better. And I think that that is a frustration that I also have that I think you're drawing on about we have the tools, we have the means, we've had them, and yet we're not doing a good job of communicating to the public, to the people for whom would benefit most from something like a vaccine, right? And there are layers here, and there are certainly variables that 
I'm maybe not accounting for in my very quick and easy observation about people that also don't care about science or don't care about intellectualism, right? In the ways that you and I do, and even our investments in these conversations will not be enough to convince people to do what is in their best interest. Thank you for sharing. I have a trillion thoughts and they all collapsed on me at the same time and I'm trying to unpack my way through them. And so I will wade into the sea to offer like that. I, I think you're, I mean, the HIV comparison is one we've been toying with for a while now. And it feels really interestingly like useful as an analog, right? Because here again, you have a moment where it feels like the end point of the conversation was supposed to be get us to a place where we have a viable defense and the viable defense will produce some sort of measurable results in like reduction of damage or harm in the world. And it feels like now we have viable defense and we don't have reduction of harm. And it's hard now to figure out what the next step is because this is, it seems to me, all public health can offer is like a viable defense. It's like a, a real meaningful thing that might actually, like we've got masks, we have a vaccine, we have PrEP, like we have a mechanism for making, the, but the thing we don't have is buy-in to the system that makes the thing work. And that lack of buy-in is now crucially a part of how we are at variant number 11, 12, whatever of like, COVID because we have a country where people are protesting a cheesecake factory. They want to eat inside a cheesecake factory unvaccinated. You can eat cheesecake factory food. They'll bring it to you outside. All they ask is that you not sit inside coughing your COVID into the air. And that is a bridge too far. And it feels like that's the thing that like crosses the, like this is the place where our public health infrastructure is fundamentally failing us. And it's like, it's, or rather we are failing it. It's doing the whole of what it can do. And if we won't buy in, then it's like, well, what's left? Mm -hmm. What other option do I have? And it feels more broadly in this time of exhaustion into the year, right? Like of a piece with what education is feeling like these days, where it's like, we built a thing, we're here offering the thing. If this isn't what you want, we don't have another thing to offer and there isn't someone offering something better. Mm -hmm. You're just saying, I choose to live in the world uneducated. And it feels like, it feels like I've gone off the rails and we've made this conversation about 10,000 different things. But I, and so, so here at the end of the year and, and, you know, a d listener, whatever, we're going to take a little bit of a break until the semester starts again. Uh, mm -hmm. And so like here at the end, as we're sort of wrapping our thoughts together, I can't, the, the takeaways I have for the year are both my insistence that the new needs friends and we cannot be afraid of new ideas. And mm -hmm. also like my deep and profound frustration that the systems that we've built do not have the buy-in of the people they're designed to serve. And I don't know how to fix that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And arguably that does not fall on your individual or my individual shoulders but is a collective endeavor that, as you've articulated, is not being bought into by multiple parties, which is what puts us in the predicament today, right? Uh, and so, you know, 
yeah, to not belabor this point that we are all simultaneously exhausted of having, but also having to observe and live through, you know, I think it's maybe good to move from the check-in section to now. Oh, no, but your cunt didn't ask me. It was my Christmas party. I lost a Christmas <laughs> party. You lost a... Wait, I'm so confused. We were supposed to have a Christmas party yesterday, and we had covid restrictions or rather you know like covid is the reason we didn't get to christmas party uh and so in answer to the check-in christmas party oh marion cost me a christmas party oh mm. yeah yes. but i put a bow on it let's move forward <laughs> thank you for circling back because i am also in a thousand places at the moment and i'm also just trying to make sense of the here and the now. Man, what late capitalism. So, we broke the world. We should have done better. So we're not doing failing better this week. Because honestly, I we should try to fail a little better. Uh, but we mm. do maybe have a piece of a disingenuous argument. And I just kind of wanted to sit with and sit inside of and think about um, maybe you've encountered this discourse around Latinx as a term, as a concept. Mm -hmm. um, so we're going to drop some things in the show notes. One of them, an op-ed from USA Today. Uh, or sorry, NBC News about uh, from a, a an activist in the community is how he self identifies who understands why uh, Hispanic identifying people are sort of troubled by the term Latinx. And so this is all an outgrowth of a Pew research study that was about sort of like, how do people who identify as, you know, when they give you those studies, they ask you to sort of choose a box and they mm -hmm. have sort of like, uh, Hispanic or non-white, his the, the, the sort of broad category that is after you do race, then into ethnicity. And so this is broken down by that second category, right? After you've done race, once you get into ethnicity, do you identify as Hispanic or no? Uh, inside of that group, how do you feel about the term Latinx? And the answers were, you know, uh, um, not great, not great. Mm -hmm. They were not, it was not supportive. And I think the, the spin in the media broadly, and I mean, you know, as sort of spurred on by your more conservative media outlets has been Democrats have completely, people on the left have completely misunderstood how much people, brown people are willing to be identified as Latinx. And frankly, they find it condescending and white saviory and exhausting and they don't understand what you're doing and it doesn't fit with the language. And it's a very... And as I was saying to you before this, before we started recording this, this feels to me like such an interesting moment because I, as a person who studies Black literature, am very, very used to like a conversation that's about Black people but being had by non-Black people. And so like we sort of sit over here and we wait for y'all to decide what it is that is the current line about how we feel on thing X, thing Y, thing Z. And this feels to me like a space where I, I get to do the sort of sitting back and being like, here's the Here's the conversation. I guess I don't have a particularly deep stake except to say, um, I mean, I think there's always room for language to be a living thing that is contested. Uh, and it's maybe not the greatest idea to have majorities vote, vote on minority rights. Uh, but beyond that, like the specificity of how do people who identify in these categories feel about these terms feels to me like it's outside my purview. And so I drop this in your lap, my good friend, mm -hmm. to sort of ask you how you feel. And I appreciate it. And thank you for sharing. I am embedded in this conversation. It is a part of my 
research program. It is a part of my agenda. It is also something that I teach regularly from semester to semester in the various courses that I in learning communities that I have. And, you know, this is really an interesting moment in a longer conversation about terminology and about headings and about how people identify amongst themselves, as well as how they are identified by administering bodies like the federal government, state government, local entities, higher education institutions, right? And I think that there is a real tension that has been bubbling since ethnic studies, Chicano studies began in the 1960s, right? And I think that to your point about the malleability of language, right? Referring to or drawing from sociolinguists, for instance, right? That language is live. It is a living uh, factor, right? Phenomenon amongst people. And the move by the League of United Man, this is so sad that I can't. The League of United <laughs> Latin American Citizens, or LULAC, right, announcing that they are going to suspend their use of the gender-neutral term Latinx in official communications is, on the one hand, or in kind of one camp, not surprising. LULAC is a... lauds itself as the kind of longest and oldest hispanic serving organization in the u.s equivalent to or similar in nature to the naacp for example right, right? and right. so i was actually very much a part of lulac when i was in ohio and was a part of a council of lgbtq an lgbtq council that was one of the few at the time in the u.s and my experiences in this council were quite revealing of the participants in LULAC, people who were paying dues to LULAC, right? And it is a very, a majority of the people who participate in LULAC, I think is something like in their like 40s, 50s, right? So it is an organization that has a, a, a an older membership base and that was a conversation that i was having with local councils in ohio and one of the reasons why i was kind of brought into the fold was because of my interest in connecting you know the 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 various parts of myself but also the communities that i'm part of that was a way to maybe offer space for LGBTQ, Latino, Latina, Latinx people. And it didn't exist at the time. It existed informally. And at the time I was very, not naive, but I had a lot of faith in organizational structure for change, especially at the level of an organization like LULAC. And this isn't an indictment on them. I think that they still offer really important and necessary work and direct services to the communities that they serve. But this has 
my participation at that time was also around the time when .next is becoming a, a a term that is you know quite controversial because of its on the one, in one camp a a moving target so to speak of value and of energy that is determined in large part by the context and the audience that you are referring to, right? And so the term itself is still very much up for debate about where it originates, right? So there's activists online who claim using it in online blogs. There are academics who claim that it emerges out of you know, university halls and in relationship to activist struggles. And there is no origin story where people agree on but the thing that based on the assumptions based on how the organization LULAC in particular is is kind of taking up in its official communication not using the term i think is quite symptomatic of the ongoing debate the live debate about the term and its association particularly with gender neutral terminology gender inclusiveness that i think is still again, will be ongoing beyond this decision by the organization. So all this is to say, the kind of energy and the impulse and the compulsion to want to not use the term, I think at the level of like an organization of LULAC reveals not that people, it, it reveals multiple things. One, people don't know or don't use the term regularly and they're not often like exposed to it or using it outside of certain contexts, primarily higher education or within more on the ground activist circles. Right? So on that one point, the second being it is accrued a type of value in gender non conforming gender neutral communities. Right? And that's important. Three, there needs to be a more research, I think, at this level on how people are actually using the term, right? So for example, even if people are not using it or have not heard of it in context A, when they're coming into my classroom, for instance, which is a smaller kind of lab, if you will, they are using it and are kind of learning the 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 struggle of like terminology right that is also tied directly to how people are classified either through the census data or through uh kind of medical encounters and i think that there is a lot to be said about the kind of transphobia homophobia that I think is also part of this conversation that is not maybe articulated because of, again, the compulsory kind of heterosexuality, the compulsory energy associated with the term that in fact, even for those people that are familiar with it and maybe don't know the full history or don't know a history of it are using it in ways that are shrouding and or are veneer 
of trans or homophobia? I feel like I've given you the stage um, for, you know, maybe an intimidating amount of time, but that was honestly the most succinct and helpful answer I've heard in a long time. And so I mostly just applaud it. I thought it was great. Additionally, I think that the term will and is a highly politicized term and no, nothing is apolitical, right? And I think that that is something that this these various articles and arguments for and against the term Latinx are also revealing that are a part of my daily life, right? And that is simply to say that I think the way that the term is articulated across very kind of formalistic politic political lines, and in this instance, Democrat, Republican, reveals, I think, the the kind of associations that each of these sets of communities or groups have about the term itself. The tweet that is associated in one of the articles, right, it's a quote from Daniel Alvarez, and it says, Democrats will win the Latinx vote, Republicans will win the Latino vote, right? And this is referring to the, the kind of question of the use of the term in Miami, which arguably is primarily or mostly a majority Cuban kind of American or Cuban descent, right? And this is the other thing that the term itself in its earlier iterations, Latino is a term that emerges to unite as a block people who are from the US, Central, South America, under the rubric to form a political block, right? And in the same way that Chicano was used in the kind of nationalist movements, the very heterosexual, heteropatriarchal national movements of the 60s, Chicano was this term, right? And that has a very political and politicized association multiple associations in a way that I think Latino does, but we're now at a point where re-articulating, extending, elaborating on Latino is just a part of a, a longer conversation about how people, you know, are, are, are not identifying themselves that I think reveals the highly politicized points associated with the term. Um, and that you have Latinos who are conservative, right? Or you have people who identify under a certain moniker and are conservative. And it, what's the problem with Kansas, I think is something that I am thinking about, right? Like what, what use value does a term have and to what ends might it be mobilized for certain groups or people? And I'm still of the persuasion that Latino remains that a base term from which multiple conversations are, are being had, right? And I am in favor of Latinx. Um, as, as, a, as a term that, you know, is, that, that's, that, that its use value extends beyond whether or not I agree with its historical kind of formation and constitution today. I think, um... Yeah, I mean, I don't know that more need be said. Um, yeah, I thought it was succinct and really like maybe maybe like robust and really generative answer. Um, yeah, 
I I I approve. <laughs> Cosine. I, I I I have a million thoughts, but I mean, like that that feels like it feels like that should be the answer. So I I'm good with that being the answer. Arguably, James, I don't think there is an answer. And also that, also I, that, in a space where hard like maybe the idea. Maybe the idea, right, is that language is a living thing and that it's a conversation about what we, what value we invest in terms. Um, and at this moment, the value invested in this term does a kind of work that its historical antecedents can't. Uh, but maybe that won't be true forever. Mm. Precedence. Certainly. I know how and, words and work. A, a parallel that you, above all, I know, know how <laughs> words work. And I, so... It, in a different vein, perhaps, the way that theory is mobilized, right? And, and I'm suspending and doing a very quick and kind of dirty observation about, you know, theory, right? And the way that theory gets mobilized and has pre-existed me and you and yet still gets taken up in certain capacities and is mobilized Certainly. in certain ways to do different types of work for the context, for the audience, for the language that it is addressing, right? And I think that the, the, the term Latinx is, is in many ways a, a really profoundly interesting and political case study of precisely, I think, this this larger conversation what i've been saying about a longer conversation about terms especially among latino latina yeah latinx i mean chicano chickenx people as, right Did, as i was reading this article like all i was thinking was like i remembered back to we've talked before about the great andrew williams uh and i remember back to sort of like the a class I, the class i took with her when i first got to grad school where she was talking about her instructor her graduate advisor trudy or harris and she was telling a story about how she wrote a paper and she had written about african-americans with a hyphen mm -hmm. and like the only note trudy or harris gave her was like oh honey we're not doing the hyphen anymore mm -hmm. uh and i remembered like it, my takeaway at that moment being like oh but also honey we're not doing african-american anymore like it's all about black right and I, I think about this as like a a way in which like language is constantly shifting but it is also a generational claim mm -hmm. about a different kind of values and the values of the generation that came before and so it always feels like contentious in a weird way right like when i'm when i'm doing the research that i do okay i'm constantly working through like the long history of ways in which we We've talked about what blackness is and what it calls itself right is it african-american is it african-american with a hyphen is it negro is it like right all the ways that the language has shifted to meet the place where the politics were at the moment and what i find exciting but also like you know what i find exciting about latinx is that it suggests the same kind of conversation and dynamic right that like there is a living language and people who are invested in figuring out how to make this mean something for them you know, I mean, without, because this is a part of my own research and pedagogical approach in the classroom, right? I mean, there are entire issues, both for Latino, Latina, Latinx audiences in the academy and those that are not, that are devoted precisely to these ongoing debates that are alive and well, right? There are anthologies still being made about the 
politicized and controversial components and pieces of the term. So it's not that it's going to go away, I don't think, just because Lulek doesn't want to use it. But in fact, I think points to and maybe highlights the the continuity of the struggle around language and around how people do or do not identify. Regardless of one's knowledge of the term or not. I mean, so it's so it's difficult for me, for example, to imagine a world where the term doesn't exist because I have been living it and in, with it in relation to it since I've been in higher education, and I don't really know a a world as well as I do inside the academy, right? So I mean, I'm all, I'm also biased, and I'm also limited, and can be limiting. And what I have to offer as well, but that those are not, I don't place a type of negative value on that as I think decisions like LULAC to do, to not use a term are maybe a bit more imbued with a negative energy association. Yes. Yeah. It feels like this is a rejection in a way that like mm-hmm. is, um, will, will not work because as we discussed last time, can't kill an idea. Mm-hmm. Mm. So Should we, we take a break and then maybe we come back and we talk about a bunch of books? Yes, yes, yes. Let's. I like this plan. I love a plan. We love a break too. <laughs> oh. It was it was it was an invitation to a Christmas Carol version of "We're Back," but it didn't. Nothing. We are back. We are back. It's Silver Bells, but it wasn't. All right. Well, you don't seem committed. I was not even committed to a Christmas rendition of "We Are Back." I, but your your interpretation of it, I think, is yeah. It was great. It was greatness and. Um, I have conservatively 27,000 thoughts about holiday movies. So we're not going to do that right now. Because before we get there, I have a big, like a broad, right? Mm-hmm. What have you been reading? So every couple weeks we check in and I ask you what you're reading. You tell me about it. And in the space between when we check in, you read other things. Because, you know, you're a learned person in the world. And this is the part of the year that's the end of the year. Like you're, mm-hmm. uh, barring some great addition, there's, this is a good time to check in and look back and ask you friend what'd you read this year that sticks out in your mind Ooh, what a wonderful question there are so many excellent articles and monographs that i read this year and one of the ones that i think sticks out most for me is the let me see this is such a good question and i'm like now trying to i came i read listener you should know that this question's off the dome uh so the 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 furious scanning you see here is just because like you know i don't believe in preparing people to ambush them 
It's not an ambush if you're ready. <laughs> I read in its entirety Andrew Jolivet's Indian Blood, HIV and Colonial Trauma in San Francisco's Two-Spirit Community, which is profoundly wonderful and extremely related to my own research and the way that this particular monograph structures its methodological approach, the questions that it's asking about Two-Spirit and Indigeneity and HIV and kind of local politics as they relate to a more domestic and maybe global approach to AIDS is really profound. And I think that sticks out to me because of the centering of love and of care and of what Professor Jolivet terms kind of thrivance, right? So it's not, a, it's not this kind of narrative about it's not only about the death, the loss, the grief, but it's also about how people are seeking pleasure, right? Joy, and also thriving in spite of the virus's ability to just completely decimate black, brown, indigenous communities, right? So that sticks out because I think my own interest in pleasure, joy, love is something that I also am trying to write through myself. And so not focusing on or allowing myself to merely focus on, again, the, the death, the loss, the grief, which is really an easy position to take for me. And arguably and, for and a lot of given people. the subject matter yeah so you know i think that that sticks out i mean darius boasts work uh the evidence of being i think is another one that sticks out because of its emphasis on kind of the community collaboration that is on one hand articulating very forcefully the anti-blackness of and structural racism of the virus and simultaneously, you know, people are still living, people are surviving uh, in ways that are important, and necessary. Um, yeah, so those stick out kind of initially off the top of my head about, you know, things that we've read. And yeah, like I just furiously going through the notes to figure out like, oh, yeah, what did I read? Um, what about you? What sticks out in your your mind and what what are you taking away? <sighs> as you have, as we, as we round out this year. I, if I may be overly indulgent, I think I have three answers. Cause I, you know, I threw the question at you. So I had some time to think about it. Uh, and I feel like the first of them for me is like um, a novel that caught me by surprise. And it's Natasha Dion's The Perishing. And mm. it is, it's I can't I can't recommend it enough it's devastating it's a history of LA that is a history you didn't know you needed like there's this chapter that's simply about like the story of the dude that has a highway named after Mulholland like Mulholland the story of how Mulholland came mm -hmm. to have a highway through LA that mm -hmm. is I'm gonna excerpt it and teach it for years to come it's devastating it's 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 jaw-dropping it's it's it is poetic and 
emphatically thought through and lived in and beautiful Mm -hmm. and it's surprising in these really unexpected ways and I've read some really great fiction this year but like I can't stop thinking about The Perishing Uh, so it maybe has to be that in terms of like if you're gonna read one novel this year don't read one novel that's stupid read Mm -hmm. 15 but like if you took the one at the top of my shelf it would be The Perishing Mm -hmm. Um, I can't stop cooking my way through Bryant Terry's black food I I'm in love and I think I've maybe cried now twice because there's like these incredible interventions in between the essays that are just like essays about what it means or in between the recipes that are like Mm -hmm. essays about sort of like blackness and black food and like the interventions between black food and religiosity there's there's it's it's I can't recommend it highly enough because Mm -hmm. the food is amazing. But then the words around the food are an inspiration and their own kind of benediction and a few literal benedictions. Um, And they're all, it's, it's incredible. And it's, it's worth checking out no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Marlisa Jimenez Garcia's uh, Side by Side, which is all about like US empire and Puerto Rico and children's mm-hmm. literature and young adult literature. And it is, I can't, and, and I've now, I think, stolen a solid two thirds of it to like in, integrate into my own work. She's mm-hmm. just, she's got a way of thinking and talking about the history of Puerto Rico that is so important and I think like it's hard to make sense out of how integral that piece of America's history is to the whole Mm because we do such a good job of not integrating it Mm -hmm. and she does such an extraordinary job of fitting it right there and making sense Mm -hmm. out of how much a part of what became like post-war consumer culture was also about like America as an empire that isn't an empire Mm -hmm. and it's it's the kind of criticism that I would love to do more of. Um, and I, and, and I'm in awe of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Certainly. And especially the case of Puerto Rico and, you know, we now have Steven Spielberg who is <laughs> re imagining with the help of America's absolute apex predator, white man, Tony Kushner. Mm. Look, he's he's a stealthy great white, but he is the apex predator. Mm. Mm. Yeah, as you were talking about the 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 side by side, I was yeah, I was like, there's so much energy right now around West Side Story, and that. As have we... you read the? I'm, we're gonna link in the. Have you read the New York Magazine like uh, rundown of why this isn't great? Not yet. I'll send no. it you and also throw it in the show notes because it's honestly the only review you need of the new West Side Story, which is like, eh, girl, you've seen West Side Story. Do you need <laughs> more Puerto Rican nonsense? Hmm. I am eager to dive in when I it's a thinker. Grading. <laughs> so, yeah, in the uh, same vein of just oh, reading... I've got more questions. Yes, yes, I have yes. more questions. Mm-hmm. Shall mm-hmm. I move on to, I guess maybe my other big question is just, so what do you want to see more of next year? And this is maybe less of what have you read and more of what are you looking to read? It's a great question. I am really steeped in my, in the literature around AIDS in the U.S. and in particular amongst Black, brown, 
communities in particular. And I am interested and eager to read more just in that literature vein. Um, but really, I think for me, more kind of longer accounts or monograph accounts, because so much of what is available today is primarily in journal article form. And so I think for me, just pragmatically, or just, you know, materially, I'd like to have longer meditations in in these worlds that I'm occupying. And yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of my initial response. What about you? What do you want to kind of be steeped more in? Man, yeah, right. I mean, I guess how do you answer the question? What I'm after this year going forward is a bunch of ways to think through the problem, the question of what are, what is, what am young adults? Um, and so like, this is the thing that I'm after this year, right? I feel like I've read a bunch of books that imagine themselves to be targeting young adults. And what I have almost no clear handle on is like, but who are we talking about? Mm -hmm. And what I would love is like some more work on this space. Uh, and at some level, you know, be the change. And so here I am doing the work. But, you know, like we're not, we we are not islands. And I would love mm -hmm. some help in wrapping our heads around like what we mean when we say. Uh, and so maybe that, I could definitely go for that. Um, I also think like, I, I, I don't think I realized until this Christmas how much space I have in my heart for deeply trashy reality TV. And so I'm really intrigued to see just like how far down the rabbit hole of crazy pretense we can go. Uh, I recently learned that Joe Millionaire, a show you may remember from the early 2000s, it's the show where they tell a bunch of women that a dude is a millionaire and they try to get them to compete for his love, but he's not a millionaire, he's a plumber and he has no money at all. Uh, and that, that that show is I being that. Oh my god. I'll send you I... YouTube links. Is it it's is it streaming? Is it streaming? YouTube. 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 Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah, I everyone remember, wants wait. to forget it. So it's only available on YouTube. And honestly, he's ugly. It's really disappointing. <laughs> yes. Reality TV for sure. I have so much to catch up on. And I'm gonna give myself some time to do that over the holiday break between the fall and spring semesters. And I mean, you've given me some great recommendations too over, over this past year about things that are, you know, happening and RuPaul is, oh, is about to uh, come out with some more, like the, the RuPaul industrial complex. It never hasn't ends. stopped. Hasn't stopped. Have you, what is Spain <laughs> and the Philippines and Canada mm -hmm. while you were sleeping, the UK. but they have a new one and they have UK and they have an, and, and they have the straight boy now. So Australia? God bless to the universe. One? I heard they're going to stop doing that one. That doesn't make sense. I saw it one does. Episode. It makes sense. It makes sense. Um, yeah, there's real mess. Station Eleven is a post-apocalypse. If you're into a new post-apocalypse, HBO wants the world to end in a way that I want the world to end. And it's, I think, why we're spirit animals. 
I saw an email <laughs> with Station Eleven. I don't think I know or have not seen a trailer of it. Is it a series or is it a movie? It's a series. It's a series. Okay. Based on a book about a post-apocalypse. Honestly, it's but, very, it's got COVID so, vibes. There's a right. flu that so, kills the whole world. So, you know, truly, though, I think that it's not fun anymore. Yeah, a, that's fair. Do you remember when everyone was doing analyses of like the zombie movies, right? As, yeah. Like, the, the, the kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. zombie mm-hmm. movie apocalypse mm-hmm. and capitalism and zombie capitalism yep. or the various. And it was all very movie. like first draft. Like, mm. get it? The zombies are mindless consumers. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Uh, yeah, yeah. But that was it. That was, you know, so that that will be really, I think, uh, interesting to observe and to witness firsthand as we're living through this moment. People's right? shitty About, COVID like, art. art the, the, the art or the kind of cultural productions, expressions yeah. that are already, you know, Making it's super interesting the that the first draft of COVID art is bad apocalypse and vaguely like HIV things. Mm-hmm. Like that's sort of the first round. Like it's this and uh, what was that show about the gays uh, that HBO did not that long ago? Oh, looking. Wait, no, no. More recently oh, than that. It was an HBO Max one. It's a sin, which is like very much about AIDS. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's like, yeah, no, the first round of COVID shows were all just like rehashings of AIDS and other pandemics. And then round two is going to be like whatever South Park just did yesterday with their like. Special. Honestly, okay, we can we talk about it for just two seconds? South Park as like a wonderful, eh, wonderful, maybe not the word as an index of like time since it's origination my god like you could because you can go back to the seasons the episodes and know exactly what the hell was happening at that time and that as an it's an archive it's an archive of it's an archive it's an archive of white boy libertarianism Mm. and i can't get over my struggle with that certainly right i mean i'm not suggesting or i'm not even fully a but i mean i think you're one thousand percent right you know, South Park is not just, it. I mean, like, it's more thoughtfully plugged into its moment than a lot of shows, right? Yes. Like, you could go back and watch Old Simpsons, and you're not necessarily getting what's happening in 1994. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. sometimes, yes, but, like, not always. Whereas South Park really is, like, they're they're doing the now in a mm-hmm. way that is very revealing. But it also means you get that episode where they talk about transgender people as being essentially, like, if you decided you wanted to become a dolphin. Right, right that was in its earlier episodes right and not even earlier i think it's been 10 years which means it was 2010 when they were saying this true i mean time flat circle time is a flat circle but also in 2010 i wasn't saying this right 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 yeah i mean no i mean it's 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 and i was much younger than south park it's uh take it's articulations of moments, uh, and especially this example, and I would need to rewatch because I don't fully remember. Are not oh man, please do because it's actually wild. Um, Woo! Right, like yeah, this is not a whole thing. The entirety of Token as a character, still, right? Still, 
still um no i mean it's not it is not without its major glaringly obvious flaws but they did buy Casa Bonita. What are we doing here? <laughs> Why have we done know. this? All right, I'm unhijacking this conversation mm-hmm. to ask the last of my book questions, which is just moving forward. What would you like to see less of? Hmm. Hmm. I'll lead because I want shorter books. This is easy for me. Mm. I want shorter books. I want us to meet in the space where we all agree and acknowledge that like nobody has time for your 40 page chapters. This is unfair and unreasonable. And I don't like being made to feel dumb because I have a job. Like I want shorter, more concise arguments and I want them to be happening at the level of like people doing deep and thoughtful work. I want shorter books. What a Herculean ask, I feel. You want less, but you want more at the same time. And I is, want the same quality and less. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, that's a really tall order. And I mean, something that I'm struggling with currently as someone who is also imagining multiple audiences for the, mon- the manuscript that I'm writing that will extend beyond the Academy and hopefully lands in other parts of the world, uh, that's that's difficult. And I think that that's accurate, too, to want to have to trudge through three, 400-page books, which arguably, I think that we are getting to that point, right? That we are getting to, or, or maybe it's just what I'm reading these days in terms of book manuscripts. It is you know, the range of like 150, 200 max, right? And the, Yeah, and I the, think that might the, be a you thing. And the 200... Because that's not been my last experience. 50, the last 50 pages are like the notes and the index and the bibliography. I think that might be a you thing. That has not been my experience. I think okay. that some well, okay. books are doing that. Well, okay, okay, okay. Then what? what is short... How are we defining shorter then? No, but what I'm what saying is I'd like? be good with 150, 200. We're not there. Like we're in the, in the land where I'm reading, we're not there yet. We're still hovering around like 200 or more and then your notes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, maybe it is disciplinarily situated or, you know, influence or inflected. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's brutal. I was reading a um, 49 page intro today and I like, I had a point. Pages fuck it and i hit a point where i was just like i don't care anymore i'm done i'm out and then there are notes friend edit edit Mm. so i you know you like to see what what do you want to see i would echo that and i want to see less hmm i don't know Impulsively, I want to say something like, I want to see, I want to see less single authored or the requirement of single authored manuscripts. And I want to see a lot more collaborative work and not, not necessarily in the kind of anthology vein, but like, Hey, we're writing a whole book together and there are multiple of us. Like, what would, what would it mean for that? Like, what would that look like? Right. To to decenter the single author manuscript and have it be a collaborative endeavor and produce a book, right? That isn't just a series of essays 
for fits and starts among people, but like, what would it mean or look like to be a truly collaborative from start to finish book, right? So maybe in the vein of like this bridge, but like, if it was just all one I've been piece. kicking around, I've been kicking around like an article about, because this is a, there are a handful of actually really interesting podcasters who are leading the way in this. So like the collaborative memoir has become, so like the My Favorite Murder women have a pod, a, a memoir together, Say Sexy, mm. Don't Get Murdered. That's a jointly authored memoir. Ditto, the women from Call Your Girlfriend uh, have a jointly authored memoir. And I've become really fascinated by this notion of the jointly authored memoir. Is this you asking me to write a memoir with you? Because I'm down. Oh, all right. Let's let's sit inside it and see how we feel. <laughs> let's tease it out. I have ambivalences about people in their 30s writing your memoirs because it's like, what are you doing? Finish the living. But also, I think there's a really fascinating collaborative memoirs. And I think there's a there's so, a document there. Yes. Maybe we're not writing in the memoir genre. Maybe it is a different genre altogether that we are writing. I think memoir is I'm, I think memoir may be easy or not easy but easier than Yeah, what hard. Than. Right, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But also you're wrong. Memoirs are hard to a good memoir is hard to do. I've but like everyone one. has memories. And so like the idea that you have something worth writing a memoir about seems like a thing a place lots of people can land easily. So yes, let's sit with it. Let's collaborate. Let's collaborate. We'll figure something out. And not just in the only fan sense of collaborate as fuck in the butt. <laughs> oh, only f that's okay. Maybe that's where we start. That's actually the entry point to the collaboration itself is commentary on the use of let's collab amongst the only fans crowd to fuck each other as a way to truly, truly then have their sex work amplified in various like networks. Yeah, branding. Yeah. Hmm. There's something there really is something. There's 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 something here. Let's collab. Friend, it's been an extraordinarily strange year to be teaching and to be working and to be, to be living in this space. <laughs> oh my God. But through the whole thing, I had you as my North Star and I have appreciated mm. that in a way I cannot stress enough. Before we leave for the year, I just have to know what you're thinking. Oh, dear James, I just want to acknowledge and honor and accept your wonderful words and echo them and say that you are equally beautiful, intelligent, a shiny beacon of hope in my world. Also, I am thinking about, I mean, as maybe cliche as it will sound about the future, about my individual future, my place in the university, what I have to offer, what I can't offer, and collectively, what is education? What, you know, what are we doing? And again, I think this is a question that you and I are always thinking through, even when we're not explicitly naming it as such. 
but really yeah like i mean what am i what am i doing right i think it that but that for me means thinking about the future and i want to believe that it will be better but i also am not naive and oblivious to the world that we live in and so a cautious a cautiously cruel optimism perhaps or a a investment in myself and those that i love as part of that future and what that might look like so i don't know i don't know i mean the future but a, an unknown future a horizon right a a thing that is yet to come but that will inevitably be here and perhaps is here and i just don't recognize it i don't know i'm i don't even think i'm philosophizing anything i'm just like not making any <laughs> sense um what it about you friend what me. are you thinking Oh, honestly, I mean, it's not a million miles away, right? It's the end of the year. What else is there to think about but the future? Uh, and I'm not a big believer in New Year's resolutions because, like, mm. why? But I, but I am really thinking about, like, intentionality and intention setting mm. and sort of moving into the new year with a clear vision for what it is that I would, like, what does being happy in the next year look like for me? Mm. Um, and part of that for me is, like, really just, like, trying to accept that the world will always have problems and that I will always have a role in solving those problems, but that the world's problems can't be the entirety of my existence. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like, I think what that operationalizes as is like trying to find joy in this thing that we are doing here in this world, right? Like in, in inside of the brokenness and inside of the shittiness and inside of the falling apart of higher education and the rising sea levels and the like COVID everywhere. And like it, inside of all of that, still insisting that like I, I have a right to be happy mm -hmm. and I, I deserve to enjoy being alive because once I die, what else will there have been? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think what I'm really interested in and thinking about for the next year is like, what would it mean to be both a socially conscious person and not a profoundly anxious person? Mm. And I guess ultimately, like, I don't think I have a clear sense of what that is, because I think that my way of mobilizing social consciousness has been through anxiety, right? Like my awareness actualizes as I am terrified by the state of the world, because how could you know this and not be terrified? But like what I'm coming to is that that's not an endpoint. It is a point along the line, right? And at some point you have to arrive at the life you want to live. And the life I want to live isn't reacting to sort of like the idea that the world will never be perfect. It is instead trying to figure out how to make something beautiful and worthwhile inside of that. And so I think that's what I wanna focus my energy on. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing. And also I want to just say you are not alone and I've got your back. And I think we can individually get to this place, but that the place will only be better when we do it together and collaboratively and with love and care. And that's what I have to offer you 
in heard, response to your heard and felt into your uh, thinking about the future and intention setting that there's solidarity. Also, bell hooks. Also, uh, we should have maybe started there, hooks. but I'm tired of starting on the tragedy. And honestly, yeah. I can't decide if 69 is way too young or like, well, Ooh. you got to go all the way to 69. Mm. They don't usually give us tragedy. that much. Tragedy. Tragedy. Loss. Really lost. I mean, I'm. It really, like, this one hits close to home because she was a frequent visiting assistant professor uh, at Ohio State. Ohio so, like, State. we both mm -hmm. got to see her, like, do mm -hmm. seminars with her. Like, she. When I tell you, like, when I think about intellectual generosity, I think about my advisor, Joe Ponce, who's incredible. And I think about, like, people like Bell Hooks. Mm -hmm. Like, she just gave and gave and gave. And, like, she would stay and keep answering your questions. And, like, I don't know. She had a really hot take on how people shouldn't have dogs that I remember thinking, <laughs> Boo. Uh, and even now, I feel like we're allowed to disagree because Bell Hooks was a bad bitch. Oh, for sure. And whose legacy and ideas will live well beyond even our small lives. What a bad bitch. What a bad We should all be so lucky. Bitch. Oof. R.I.P. Thank you. And just thank you. And mm. also thank you. It was much appreciated, truly. Game-changing, eye-opening. We think about it. It mattered to us. We felt seen. Mm. Well, dear friend, as we wrap, out, wrap up the final episode of the year, I just want to reiterate that I appreciate you. I am grateful for you. I honor you. I care for you. I love you. And I'm so happy we get to do this. Uh, all that, all that, all that. It's a joy and a pleasure. And I, I really can't say it enough. It makes me happy to do it every time. Mm. Well, we will see you next year. Provided the world doesn't end. <laughs> Provided the world does not end. The world ends every day. Uh, <laughs> at midnight, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Talk soon. Bye.